welcome to the Inspiring Sustainability Podcast. And today I am delighted to be inviting uh, Jane Davidson to join us on the call today. And um, Jane, if you want to maybe do a very quick introduction of, because you've got uh, a few hats I think that you wear, and uh, it's I don't, I don't want to kind of uh, get any of them wrong. So just give yourself like, what's your name, rank, and serial number first, and then we'll I'll go and ask a little bit deeper about you uh, uh, after that. Thanks, Adam, and and I'm delighted to be joining you too. Um, I'm Jane Davidson. I'm currently the Pro Vice Chancellor responsible for external engagement and sustainability at the University of Wales, um, Trinity St David. Um, Prior to this post, um, I spent 12 years as a minister in government in Wales, and during that period of time, um, I laid the basis for the introduction of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which is the first act, not just in the UK, but actually in any country in the world, that explicitly takes the Sustainable Development Goals and delivers them into legislation. That's excellent. Sounds like a very exciting uh, platform for us to be talking about through this uh, conversation. Um, so, yeah... Th- Actually, tell me a little bit more about yourself, because you've given me the, uh, a quick headline there. Um, tell me uh, maybe a little bit more about your career and also maybe what uh, inspired you to first get into sustainability. Well, I, um, I was brought up in Africa, which I think is quite important, um, and uh, brought up in, in, in Zimbabwe and didn't come over to the UK um, to live until I was 16. And actually, the experience of coming to the UK um, and from a country which uh, looked after all its resources, because the people I dealt with on a daily basis in in Zimbabwe um, never wasted a thing. And we were also under sanctions from Britain at the time. So there were no uh, major consumerist agendas operating um, in, 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 in Zimbabwe. And so my childhood uh, was very much, um, I think in many ways, an incredibly privileged childhood. My childhood was just lived outdoors. I was out um, either on foot or out on a bike every day of my life. I had enormous freedom. Um, my, my parents had cars, and I still remember the uh, number plates of them now, um, RSD 146 and 147. Because at that time, and this is when Zimbabwe was still Rhodesia, um, there were only 147 cars wow. registered, <laughs> which might tell you something about how old I am as well. But this was the, this was the very early 1960s. So I did have this immensely privileged childhood of being out all the time. Um, I still know a huge amount about African flora and fauna, um, but that notion about being out outside, having a strong bond with nature, has stayed with me my whole life. And that's probably very important because as a child, that is just what you grow up with. So you don't see it as being different from anybody else's uh, childhood. And yet when I came to the UK and was thrust from that African background into a a boarding school in order to do O-levels at the time, I suddenly was in this dramatically different culture where um, I suppose in many ways out of boredom uh, and, and constriction, the girls I was at school with used to 
change their clothes every day after lessons. Oh. We had very strict uniforms for lessons. And they'd dress up in the most amazing um, clothes and they'd compete with each other for clothes. And when we saw parents arriving to take us out of school for um, weekends, um, people would be really derogatory around about the cars people drove or very envious about cars. So it was an incredibly consumerist culture. And I arrived in this with, with um, one best dress. Wow. <laughs> that was it, which is what I'd had um, previously. So it was quite an extraordinary experience. And um, it made me realize that there were completely different values operating in, my, in, my, in, the, in the country that I was living in. In, in now. And I've always looked back at that moment as one of the epitomies in my life. Because although I played the game, and most people will when they're young, I tried to get interested in clothes. I tried to get interested in the newest thing. And I always felt that this was wrong. Because I'd come from a background where people had so little and made so much of the little they have. And it was only when I was in my mid-twenties but I started to realize that actually, I, for me, I was never, ever going to argue for a consumerist society. Mm. Because issues around fairness, issues around equality, and issues around nature were far more important to me than the acquisition of things. So I suppose that, um, you know, this is quite a lot of detail on one particular part in my life. But that was one epiphany. And the second actually took place around the first Rio conference uh, in 1992. Because I I did an English literature and drama degree. I spent time as a teacher, time as an actor, time as a youth worker, time as an activist. I ran an anti-poverty campaign for a number of years, which is what I was doing when the Rio conference was on. And I suddenly realized that I was an Agenda 21 woman. And that actually that relationship between um, wanting to tackle issues of poverty and wanting to do that uh, in a a way that treasured and embraced the environment was actually the person who I was. And it's the person I still am. So that has driven every single other thing that I've done since then. And so my passionate interests are around education as a root out of poverty and also to make sure that we do understand about living within our environmental limits and that living within our environmental limits is not um, a hair shirt and ashes approach to life. It is actually about embracing everything um, that this amazing one planet we live on offers to us. Well, that's, uh, yeah, powerful. And I'm glad you kind of went into that that detail because it gave a, I could almost see those kind of like African vistas and planes that uh, you were you were playing on as a child. And then also that kind of uh, probably fabulous, but also constricted uh, school that you went to. Um, so that, that's given a real context. Thank you. Um, but actually, the obviously we're, we're now in the twenty first century, and um, something that I I've been interested in generating uh, for like over ten years is, is behavioural change around sustainability. Um, so I'd be fascinated to hear how you think we can enable sustainability to get beyond 
uh, that sort of relatively narrow strata of society that actually engages in it uh, instinctually, which is maybe the sort of the, pe- the sort of person that would listen to this podcast is that type of person. So for for me and for those that are listening, how do you think we can get the views of the converted out there and help grow the impact of sustainability rather than actually sometimes it's possible that even somebody like myself or uh, people who are the converted could unconsciously hold it back even? I think, I think, it's, I think it's a very complex issue, but, but actually... It's about also finding the links between sustainability and other agendas. I mean, I used to, and this is very much related to the point um, that I made about being a gender 21 woman, um, because when I was doing anti-poverty work, which is um, very much about the sort of the social pillar of sustainability and the economic pillar of the sustainability, until Rio and the Agenda 21 agenda, I almost felt embarrassed about bringing the environmental leg of sustainability together with the kind of social and economic legs. And I think that what we had then with Rio was sort of permission um, to actually ensure that you can't actually have um, a world without poverty if you don't also look at how you, how you practice your economics and how you relate to the environment. I mean, if we just take, you know, a, a very traditional example, but creating an open-cast coal mine not only damages um, the world in the context of um, carbon, but it leaves a major scar on the environment mm. that the poorest people have to live with. So you degrade their quality of life as well. And as somebody who's been um, in politics for a number of years, both as a local councillor uh, and then, and then um, in national politics in, in Wales, and having worked in the House of Commons as part of that journey, you know, I've always seen that the richest districts in any city or town are always very, very well looked after. Mm. The roads are well maintained, the gardens are well maintained, uh, the infrastructure is well maintained. Um, and yet those people have resource to do it themselves. And yet if you go to the poorest districts, none of those, um, uh, infrastructure elements is well maintained, although you would expect local authorities to have a duty to look after those who cannot maintain those for themselves. So it just feels to me always as though we've got a sort of topsy-turvy world that's not adequately focused on issues related to equality. Mm. So for me, all these areas are intertwined. We're not going to get prosperity without the right resilience. We're not going to get improved health or more equality or more cohesive communities um, or globally responsible countries um, unless we also have vibrant cultures, thriving um, identities, local um, understanding, local economies because they bring money back into local communities. So it does, it does require us to think differently. And I know that some people think that actually running a a sustainability agenda and the word sustainability gets in the way. I don't think that's the case. I think that it's actually about operating a fairness agenda. Mm. That if people are asked to be fair in everything they do and to extend that fairness from an individual basis to an organisational basis to a locality basis to a country basis to a world basis, it does change your actions. 
So it's a major philosophic issue about how we move beyond what can often become fundamentalism in any area which people are passionate about mm. to a broader concept about is the world a better place where we're fairer to each other or not? Now, the pervading political narrative, and particularly are doing this at the time of an election, um, is for the first time in many, many years, we actually have a very different offer from parties. One, which is uh, focused in the sense of unfairness, rewarding ambition with tax cuts, etc. One, which is focused on fairness, which is saying that you do have to look after the most vulnerable. Mm. And certainly the, um, the smart money at the moment is, is suggesting that actually the, the, the looking after those who are aspiring, which will generate in itself more unfairness, is what people are likely to support. So I do also think we go through times and tides where you have to use different language in different times um, to actually uh, get people onto the agenda. Yes, so basically it's, it, what I'm yeah, hearing is that the uh, to how to to work to, to create the behaviour changes is focus on how you make the linkages and then also particularly on fairness uh, with that, that kind of weaves through it all. Yeah, it, it, it's very important to me and I, it's been very important in the work that I've done and do. So, for example, in the university um, where I'm, 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 I absolutely love my role in the university, I work in, I think, a really exciting university. We're one of the only universities in the UK that actually has a very senior post which has sustainability in the title. That mm. our university fully understands that sustainability is about the balance between um, the economic, the social, the environmental and the cultural leg. You know, we offer bilingual courses. We're very strong on equalities. We're very strong on fairness. Um, we have ethics and philosophy as an integral part of our offer. We also, both in the context of what we do ourselves in our own campuses, but also what we're doing in building new buildings, make them sustainable as possible for the future. We're very focused on the idea that what we teach, how we teach, where we teach, who we teach, is really important in terms of building skills and resilience in future generations. Now, I mean, if my message was a green message, then in sense, I would be sidelined. If my message was a social message, I'd be shifted over into some kind of widening access mm. type initiative. It's only because the, the message that the university is promoting is actually a message about educating our students Mm. for a changing world, a world that is going to be constrained in the context of natural resources, that is going to be changing in terms of their employment opportunities, that is going to be changing in terms of their own social um, and economic opportunities. We know that, for example, my children, all of whom are in perfectly reasonable jobs, none of them has been able to buy a house. I bought a house seven years before um, um, you know, the, the age of my eldest now. And at the time, I was, I, I was in, in the absolutely normal uh, situation for the mm. early 1980s. So this generation has got a pretty bad deal out of our generation. And so we feel an obligation as a university that by building skills, resilience, giving them the education, giving them the narrative to be better able to be creative problem solvers, to be thinkers, to be curious, 
um, to have transferable skills around teamwork and others will not only make our students more employable, but also more ethical. And that's an, an incredibly exciting position for me for, for me to be in now. Yes, I mean that does sound it, and it's something that <clears throat> uh, what your your passion and you can you can hear that in uh, what you're just saying. Um, obviously, also comes from some of the work that you've been involved with historically, um, with the your the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which you are integral to helping deliver, which also fits with uh, something that's been uh, comparatively successful recently on a global level, which is the UN's uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So, yeah, if you yes, could just, I think that the, yeah, tell a bit more about those. Yes, I think the um, I think the UN Sustainable Development Goals are basically a framework for a better age. So if you take that ultimate principle of fairness, that's what those goals are aiming to do. And they're looking at establishing their 17 goals. They're looking at establishing partnerships for a better world. And there are all sorts of elements to those goals in terms of whether or not people are doing specific work on climate change or, or education and, and obviously as an education institution, you know, how we deliver quality education, how we deliver fair education, how we get our education out more widely. We actually do quite a substantial amount of work in Africa in different projects, both through anthropology and through education, for example. So if, if you operate a sort of fairness for the better world agenda, that sounds to many people very woolly because they don't, they don't see what it means in the context of their own lives. Mm. So I think that if governments, and of course so many governments have signed up, nearly 200 governments across the world have signed up to the UN SDGs, and they're all creating plans to deliver on that, if those governments are in a sense translating those UN Sustainable Development Goals into member state policies, mm. then I think there is a further opportunity at the low member state level where governments can be much more flexible, they're much quicker in, um, uh, in terms of being able to move because they don't have the, the, the same panoply of structures. And that's what was able to happen in Wales. When I left government in 2011, I was able to propose um, a, an act that would um, enable uh, Wales to really develop its sustainability agenda. Um, prior to that, I, I had um, put in place a, a kind of one Wales, one planet vision back in 2009 that has got a lot of public traction, very strongly supported by schools, local authorities, health services across Wales. And as a result of that, the Act that is now in place, and although I, you know, I have ownership of the um, essence of the Act in terms of creating an Act that binds the public sector in Wales, including the Welsh Government, um, to think differently, to demonstrate how they're putting sustainable development at the heart of their delivery, it is actually a new set of assembly members, a new set of ministers um, that actually put the act together. And I think they've done an amazing job because they've taken the SDGs, and of course the SDGs weren't signed off um, until a couple of years ago, which is uh, beyond my leaving government. So they've taken the SDGs and they've created these seven goals a prosperous Wales, a resilient Wales, a healthier Wales, a more equal Wales, a Wales of cohesive communities, a Wales of vibrant culture and thriving Welsh language, a globally responsible Wales. And in doing this, they've created um, the opportunity for Wales 
to deliver an entirely different kind of an agenda around uh, what Wales wants to be and how it wants to be seen for the future. This is about developing a sustainability brand for a country and bringing political purpose to developing that sustainability brand. And I think that's incredibly exciting because it means that it's not about one individual party. It's about whether or not and how all parties um, can actually then look at how they're going to deliver against an overarching purpose, which is um, a Wales that improves its cultural, economic, environmental and social delivery for the benefit of the people of Wales. And so it's, it's a new initiative. Um, obviously, all laws are in some senses only as strong as their enforcement. And so you, you, you won't be surprised to find that a number of people are out there saying, well, what does this mean in terms of road building in Wales? Does this mean the end of open cast mining in, in, in Wales? Um, I think that uh, both those things um, uh, will be addressed in due course by the Act. It won't be the end of open cast mining um, on a set date in the coming year, but it does mean that when Wales is required to address the goals and the descriptions of the goals that are also in the Act, then it means that some activity will have to be phased out and probably phased out more quickly in Wales than elsewhere. And other activities will only be able to be delivered if they're delivered completely differently. So as we're doing the phone call, there is a public inquiry on uh, underway at the moment about whether or not the Welsh Government's previous proposals for an ex- uh, a relief road to the M4 fit with its own in its own legislative model, and we'll be hearing from that um, probably uh, um, uh, around about September. So the Act, I think, will change the way that people do things, and it's a perspective of the possible. It's a permission to think differently. Yeah, no, it sounds. Uh, it's. Uh, I think it's. Uh, you, you've got to get these innovative opportunities happening and as, as you've indicated the UN SDGs have given us the, the kind of foundation for something to build upon and it really does sound as though what's being developed in Wales has, has really started to build on that and people have to work out how to use it it's it's a it's a new building which they're working uh, how to do, to make it operate effectively so it's fantastic that they've got that well, let, let me just give you one particular example, because I've just said that the descriptions of each of the goals are in the Act. And when people see a headline like a prosperous whale, they think, oh, yes, my project fits into a prosperous whale. Mm. And, of course, that's, you know, governments have historically always done short-term, um, taken short-term decisions. And they'll always use the idea that it contributes towards prosperity or benefits the economy. But this is the description in the Act. An innovative, productive, and low-carbon society, mm. which recognises the limits of the global environment, uses resources efficiently and proportionately, including acting on climate change, and which develops a skilled and well-educated population in an economy which generates wealth and provides employment opportunities, allowing people to take advantage of the wealth generated through securing decent work. Now, that is now the law in Wales. Mm. 
You have to define prosperity in that way. So people are going to wake up to the fact that actually there are lots of activities which you and I and probably people listening to this podcast would, would find totally unacceptable because they are high carbon activities. They would not be able to be delivered under that definition of a prosperous world. Yes. And if I give you one other, just to, um, uh, to, to, to clarify the point, a resilient whale is a nation which maintains and enhances a biodiverse natural environment with healthy functioning ecosystems that support social, economic and ecological resilience and the capacity to adapt to change, for example, climate change. So in both of those areas, you now have a legal framework for how that is delivered. And that's why the strength of this in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals is unique. Excellent. Now that's, that's really inspiring. And, uh, you know, it's uh, why I set this podcast series up, which is to uh, hopefully inspire the listeners. And one of the things that what's great for me, it gives me a regular dose of inspiration as well. And uh, actually, uh, talking about listeners, many of the listeners will be probably thinking about how they get sustainability into their strategies uh, within their organization. And uh, I understand that you're passionate about building that uh, yourself. So can you tell me a bit more about how uh, the listeners might get some ideas about how they can build sustainability into their strategies? Well, I think that the, uh, I mean, the obvious one now in Wales is what we've done is we've built the Wellbeing for Future Generations Act into the heart of our strategic plan. Mm. And the fact that it is an act um, means that actually every organisation in Wales should now be looking to do that. And if you do have an act, or you have, for example, the Sustainable Development Goals, and hopefully in due course, all governments in the context of the UK um, other than Wales, will be able to say how they're going to deliver on the Sustainable Development Goals. If you build that into what you do, then you're going with the, um, the general trend. And I think that that's quite important, because if what you're trying to do in your strategic plan is go against a trend, you have to be very secure about who you are and what you're offering, and particularly if you're businesses. Mm. You need to know what your market is. You need to know how you're going to be taking something forward. You need to know you have traction in terms of the message. So there are a lot of organizations, um, particularly organizations who have used mechanisms such as sustainable brands or mechanisms such as the B Corp to actually demonstrate how their business fits into a different and alternative mm. agenda, but an alternative agenda that is building among people who are more socially and environmentally conscious. So provided you know your market and you know that your message will play in your market and you won't have to adapt your message to such a point that you've lost your message and therefore lost your unique selling point, I think how you build sustainability into your organization is about how far the organization is prepared to go. And if you've got a legislative contact, that really helps. Yeah, that's that's great, and I think that's that one of the things is it's uh, being aware of where you are, and I think it, one of the things that what I wouldn't want obviously the listeners to do if they if they're not based in Wales is to get too disheartened by the fact that they don't have some of the the legislative support that is provided in uh, in that country. 
because actually, as you say, it's about taking the organisation where it, to where it is and where it can go to. And and then my experience personally is that um, that will kind of expand the comfort zone of the organisation if you take it as far as it can. And then it, if with a little bit of patience, you can then start to build the strategy wider and wider and wider. And yeah. uh, so, and the thing is, you know, Rome uh, in the famous phrase wasn't built in, in a day. Um, so I'm just uh, v- very aware of that uh, of, of our time here, and making sure that we uh, I don't I don't take too much of your time up here because there's, you've got so much to uh, to give uh, in this way. But turning back to some uh, some things more about yourself, uh, really, um, is through this career. Obviously, you've had some really great successes and uh, some great strides forward. But have there been any uncomfortable lessons that you've had, which you, uh, you think might be useful to share? Absolutely. I mean, one of the, I think probably my most uncomfortable time happened in 2010 because three things happened in that year, which actually also then became the reason that I that, that I, pr- I proposed the Wellbeing Future Generations Act. The, the first that happened um, was that um, the Sustainable Development Commission um, was uh, summarily disbanded. Mm. And I think in many ways it, it was an accident, but there was no legislation um, that enabled the Sustainable Development Commission, which was a, um, a body of 12 independent advisors that advised all the governments in the UK of all the different political colours. Um, and I just found their advice very useful because it was evidence-based and independent. Mm. And But it was funded by the UK government. And when the um, Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition came in, they were very keen to um, reduce the number of non-departmental funded uh, public bodies, which you can fully understand as a, as, a, as, a, as a policy. But the consequence of that meant that the um, Sustainable Development Commission um, uh, was, was actually one of the first to go. And suddenly for me, as a minister in Wales, I'd lost my independent resource that links to the rest of the UK. And the second thing that happened um, was that WWF commissioned a a policy review of um, the way in which Welsh government um, had been taking forward the sustainability agenda. And I was, I mean, I was actually very pleased in government. I thought we were doing pretty well. But we were doing pretty well against a pretty low bar Mm. in the sense that others weren't doing very much and WWF um, analysis basically said that um, although I probably personally was doing fairly well, and note fairly, not very, fairly well, but actually the government that uh, where I was leading on sustainability was not delivering um, uh, in fact, they were delivering more rhetorically. And that was, a, uh, that was an awful wake-up call, mm. particularly since I'd announced I was leaving government in 2011, and, and this was one of my passions. And the third element was when the Wales Audit Office um, actually looked at the structure of the Welsh government and found that although at the top of the organisation, because um, the Welsh government is um, you know, a couple of thousand employees spread mm. across Wales, delivering the whole of the of the areas of responsibility for the government in Wales. Um, that although at the top of the organisation, the senior civil servants were telling ministers that they were taking reg- had regard to the commitment to sustainability and they were doing it right throughout the organisation, in fact, they were not. Mm. So I found myself in this very uncomfortable space where I, having lost my independent advice, 
but also being told basically, Jay, you haven't stepped up well enough. You know, your government's not doing mm. well enough. And you're, you know, although ministers don't run the civil service, um, you haven't managed to get the, uh, a strong enough message to the civil service that they've got to get this right down throughout the organisation. So, um, in a sense, the consequence of this was what is now the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. But I realised in other settings that people will be told that, you know, they don't, that, that their sustainability challenge uh, is not going to be accepted, that the senior part of an organisation is not, is not going to accept the premise. And I think then you just basically dust yourself off and start again. Yes. I know, and have known since that epiphany I mentioned when I was about 16, I will devote all my life in some way or other to whatever route I'm in, my contribution will always be about tackling poverty and um, inequality and also uh, making sure that uh, we em embrace and enhance our environment. And of course, you know, I will um, end up, like others, having to influence different people on the way. But I think if the core of what you're promoting has a strong evidence base, that is the best thing that you can do, is use that evidence base for the best effect. Yes, yes. Great. Well, that's a, um, a, a great learning and journey that you had there. Um, so just to, I'm going to ask the, the, the last question of, of today's um, podcast, which is um, we like to finish with a, a glass half full in inspiring sustainability. Um, so looking forward, what inspires you about the future? Well, I think, I think you, you, you always have to get your own inspiration from places. And I think there's probably two people alive now um, who, um, who inspire me hugely in completely different ways. On the, on the, on the philosophical, ethical um, link with nature, um, Satish Kumar. Mm. Um, Satish is a, uh, is a man who started off as a Jain monk um, uh, at the same time as Gandhi, um, uh, who has been living in the UK for many, many decades now. He's the editor of the Resurgence and Ecologist magazine. He set up Schumacher College um, to actually embrace the philosophy of E.F. Schumacher, um, who uh, people will know in the context of the Small is Beautiful uh, agenda. And, and Satish just has a very big philosophy about everything being related. The one is the all. And he speaks in Trinity. So he talks about soil, soul, and society. And I think soil, soul, and society is a, is a wonderful um, uh, shorthand way of encompassing um, what I believe in. And another trinity uh, that he talks about is the bud principle, beauty, utility, durability. And I just think those, those, those inspire me very much. It's shorthand concept for much bigger vision, uh, which is actually a vision of, about a world in harmony. So I think that world harmony is very, very, very important here. And the work that was done by Tony Juniper and, in fact, our Chancellor, the Prince of Wales, in looking at what harmony looks like and how harmony has been a tradition across the ages, across religions, um, uh, is, 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 is a very important part of that agenda. And on the other side, I'm incredibly excited by innovation. So Elon Musk, um, mm. you know, with the... You know, it's an innovation a week in some senses, but with what's happening with Tesla and the way he's driven the electric vehicle agenda, the way he's driving the, the similar agenda in 
um, roofing components, so how you travel, you know, what your house looks like, how your house behaves, how your, how your house can serve you, um, is incredibly exciting. So I think that really interesting innovators who innovate in that spirit of future generations but people who also draw you back to a philosophical base where you don't trample on each other in terms of getting there. They're the people who inspire me. And what really excites me is the fact that I think that in the next generations we are going to see more and more of both those types of people. People who want to explore better harmonies with the world and the internet is a massive opportunity for people to be able to get together about bigger visions but also um, Elon Musk challenges daily people to deliver better kinds of technology that actually deliver a much cleaner world. So I'm incredibly inspired about the future and I, and I myself left politics to run a small holding. So when I'm not in my day job, we have 10 acres, we grow an acre of fruit and vegetables, um, our house runs off the sun and, the, and our own woodland, we drive an electric uh, vehicle and, and I feel that I'm therefore doing my part on an individual level because the personal is the political. That's, I mean, that's brilliant. And um, I, I knew there was a reason why I uh, intuitively just said, Jane, could, could we do a podcast together? Um, <laughs> Because actually, Satish has been a big inspiration for me. I first saw him speak about 12 years ago. I've been on uh, walks with him for like uh, three or four days. I've been down to the Schumacher College and sat sat in front of the fire with him whilst he holds forth. I've read his books. And uh, yes, he's, he's, a, he's a very inspiring and beautiful human being. And, uh, and also bringing right up to date, uh, Elon Musk, He's, he's also, him and one or two other people are real inspirations for me and something that I am working with the concept of is kind of exponential um, because for me it's about that uh, some of the challenges that we've got, uh, for example climate change, uh, are so big and have grown so uh, vastly that the solutions that we need to create can't grow incrementally, they need to grow exponentially to kind of head exactly. it off of the pass. And yeah. so, and for me, what Musk is doing with his battery storage, for example, and some of the other things, is a, a really good example of people who are just, they're not seeing the problems, they're just seeing the solutions. And, yeah. and that, I, I think that is absolutely critical, Adam, is that you have to go through life as a glass half full, not yes. a glass half empty. I was listening to a man called um, Peter Polyador yesterday, um, who's been immensely successful. Um, entrepreneur uh, in Los Angeles um, who now runs a venture capital fund and he was describing a situation whereby you know the real entrepreneur is standing you know on the on, on the edge of a cliff above a river and the river is full of mines and there's a pot of gold on the other side and the real entrepreneur either doesn't see the mines or navigates the mines yes. where as a glass half full person and they will get to the pot of gold. And they'll often get there in ways that nobody expects because they just see the prize, whatever it is, yeah. and they just go towards the prize. And those people who are glass half empty will see every barrier and want to explore every barrier. They will never reach a point that makes them happy. And I think that fundamentally, people who are interested in sustainability are optimists. Yes. And I think you need to retain that optimism for the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's a, a great 
point to finish this podcast on that uh, we, we, we need to be optimists about the future so thank you so much Jane for giving your time and uh, sharing your journey and your wisdom it's been so appreciated thank you and so uh, thank you also to the listeners uh, for uh, uh, picking up today and listening to this podcast if you want any more uh, sustainability inspiration then you can go to inspiring-sustainability.com and you'll find my podcasts and blog there you can also follow me uh, via LinkedIn or Twitter and those are great places for me to also interact with you and so I'd love to hear from any of the listeners about what they've uh, thought about this uh, this podcast and so until uh, the next one uh, this is Adam Woodhall Inspiring Sustainability signing off thank you for being with us and goodbye